Good morning. My name is Joanne Guarnieri Hegmeyer. I'm a member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team, and I'm very glad that you're here with us. You came on a great day because we're going to start something new. We're going to start walking through the gospel that John wrote. And as I was thinking about this gospel, it reminded me of how much I've always wanted to be on a jury. But every time I got into the jury pool and they started asking questions, I never made it to the jury box. However, David, my husband, did, and here's the instruction that he would get as a juror. He was supposed to only weigh the evidence that was brought in by the two lawyers, just the eyewitness testimony and just the physical evidence. No other opinions or stuff that he'd read before or anything like that, just that evidence. And the idea of bringing in eyewitnesses and physical evidence is something of the way the Apostle John also approached his gospel. John was asking his audience to hear testimony, so he brought in seven witnesses, and he also talked about seven claims that Jesus made about himself. He also brought in physical evidence, and that's seven of the miracles that Jesus performed. John called them seven signs. And he wanted his audience to come up with a conclusion. Is Jesus, or is he not, the Messiah and God the Son? And for those who put their faith in Jesus, can he or can he not shepherd us through the trials of life? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at John's evidence, these seven witnesses, these seven claims, and these seven signs. And then we're going to consider John's own confession that Jesus is God the Son. And then we're going to finish up with the two responses that John was hoping this gospel would percolate up. So let's pray. Oh, Lord. We ask for your help in seeing the scope of what you inspired John to write. And we ask for your inspiration within ourselves as well to grasp as best we can your revelation of yourself and of your call to us to believe and to have faith and to live in your light. We pray it to the praise of your grace. Amen. The Gospel of John has two big things to say about Jesus. First, Jesus is the promised Messiah all the prophets had written about in the Hebrew Testament. He is the Deliverer, the Anointed One, or Holy One of God, who Israel had been longing for for so long to come and free them from bondage. Which brought John to the other big thing the Gospel wants to say about Jesus, something far bigger than Jesus being the Messiah. It is an astounding secret that had been guarded all throughout the Hebrew Testament's history, yet hinted at again and again. The Messiah would be none other than God. Yahweh, the great I Am, the very person of God in human form, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And because these things are true, John claimed, by believing and receiving Jesus, you will have eternal life. In order to show us the truth of both of these titles, that Jesus is Messiah, or Christ in the Greek, and that Jesus is God, the Gospel of John carefully selected witnesses and the words and works of Jesus, which John called signs. So the seven witnesses. The first eyewitness John presents is God three in one. Jesus is God, creator, the eternal word through whom all things were made, the only son who has made the father known to people. And that we find in the very first verses of chapter one. Then came John the Baptist's testimony. Jesus is the son of God and the lamb of God, a phrase that was rich and heavy with meaning for a Jewish audience. Next came Nathanael's testimony when he first met Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, the promised King of Israel. Then came Peter's testimony in chapter 6. When Jesus' other followers were leaving him, Peter proclaimed Jesus is the Holy One of God, Messiah, holding eternal life. 
Next was Martha's testimony. Even before Jesus raised her brother from the dead, she proclaimed, Jesus is Messiah, Christ, the Son of God. Then came Thomas's testimony in chapter 20, after Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is not only Lord, Jesus is God. And finally, John's seventh witness was Jesus himself, who made seven claims about himself based on the name that was so holy. No Jewish person ever uttered it out loud. The name God had given to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am, or Yahweh. Well, Jesus made seven Yahweh statements. I am the bread of life. What do we think nourishes our souls? Is it the satisfaction of a career or of raising children or a wonderful life? Truly, Jesus is the only one who nourishes our souls with what will give us authentic life. Then I am the light of the world. What gives spiritual insight? Is it spiritual experiences or thinking about philosophy or drawing from the teachings of various religions? Jesus proclaims he is the one who illuminates the spirit with true light. Before Abraham was, I am eternal God. Have you ever wondered who God is really? What God is like? Jesus proclaims he is the personification of God. If we want to know God, then know Jesus. I am the good shepherd. Think about the people who have taken care of you and me over the years. Maybe you feel like no one has ever really cared for you or taken care of you. Yet these words right now come from Jesus to you and to me personally. He does care for us and is always ready to take care of us, no matter what life has thrown our way. I am the resurrection and the life. For those who have wondered what happens after the grave, who are facing a serious health issue, or who have someone close to them facing death right now, Jesus proclaims he has authority over even death itself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why are there so many religions? Which one leads to knowing God? Jesus proclaims he is the path that leads to God. He is the way. With and through Jesus is the path that leads to God. He is the truth. Jesus embodies in his person the supreme revelation of God. And he is the life. Through Jesus, eternal life can be given and received. Finally, I am the true vine. How does a person have an abundant and fruitful life? By being in intimate union with Jesus. Then John covered seven physical signs. Think about what a sign's purpose is. When you go on a road trip, you look for the signs that mark out where the exits and entrances are on the freeway and what the names of the roads are so you know where to turn. Your focus is on getting to your destination, not to admire the signs. The sign's whole purpose is to get your attention, then point, not to remain the central focus. In chapter 2, Jesus attended a wedding at Cana where he turned water into wine just by speaking. This sign pointed to Jesus' creative power, the power of his word. He spoke, and it was so. In the same way, you and I are transformed from mortal to immortality, from under God's wrath to enveloped in God's grace by the word. In chapter 4, Jesus healed a royal official's son. Jesus did not go to the royal official's house. He simply spoke the word from a distance, revealing Jesus' authority over all creation, whether he was physically present or not, inspiring faith in the official. In the same way, you and I are healed from the ravages and corruption of sin by faith in the word. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years and unable to be cured. Jesus came right up to him out of all the people who were there, and he asked him, Would you like to be healed? In that, Jesus revealed the personal nature of salvation, that Jesus will seek you and me out, asking us, Would you like to be free?
In chapter 6, Jesus provided a meal for at least 5,000 people. Jesus revealed himself as the bread of life, able to satisfy even though it seemed an impossible amount was needed. He likened himself to the heavenly food God had sent to those wandering in the wilderness. Only Jesus is the true manna. You and I are satisfied and strengthened by Jesus because he feeds our souls. And then also in chapter 6, Jesus walked out on the lake while his disciples were struggling in a storm. They were terrified. Their boat was about to be capsized and their situation looked grim. But Jesus brought with him the ability to still the storm, to provide peace and safety. And his power over even the forces of darkness was revealed. In chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth, a man with eyes that had never worked. Not only did Jesus transform the story of his life, not pitiable, but purposeful, but Jesus revealed he is the master over all of life's circumstances, creating eyes that could see, and a life situation that glorifies God. In chapter 11, John recorded the last sign, Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, revealing his power and authority over life and death itself. Through eyewitnesses, testimony, and physical evidence, John proves Jesus is the prophesied Messiah and Lord. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. And also, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Lord Jesus Christ has the power to move us from death to life and to move us from ordinary life to fullness of life. But then comes the confession that Jesus is God, because over the years, questions had arisen about the timeline of Jesus' ministry, and John wanted to set that straight. And believers were coming under heavier and heavier persecution, and they needed pastoral care of the living Christ. But most importantly, there were a growing number of those who were denying the humanity of Jesus, that God had somehow imbued the man Jesus with God's supernatural being when he had risen up out of the Jordan, baptized by the other John, John the Baptist. And that somehow, in that last hairbreadth of a moment, when Jesus' breath rattled to a stop on the cross, God had taken the Holy Spirit back, because God cannot be mortal. That's what those people were saying. John was committed to answering all those questions, but in particular, the question of Jesus' nature and being. Jesus had told Nicodemus that he was the Savior of the world, and he had told the woman at the well he was the long-awaited Messiah, and he'd told Pontius Pilate that he was king. But Jesus' most profound statement came in a sermon that he preached on the temple steps, saying, The Father and I are one. The term Son of God may not sound like saying flat out Jesus is God. It may sound like there is a distinction between the term God and the term Son of God. But remember, John wrote his gospel in the context of ancient Judea, to be read by those familiar with the Hebrew scriptures as well as the practice of Rome's emperors. No Hebrew would have seen a distinction between those two terms. To someone of Jewish culture and faith, to call someone a son of something was to say he was identified with, even identical with, that thing or that person. So to the Hebrews, the use of the term son of God meant this man is God, of one being with God. He was literally the personification of Godhood on earth. In much the same way, for the centuries surrounding the events of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, several Roman emperors were deified after their deaths so that their successor was entitled son of a God. 
In this way, Roman emperors had temples built to them where people could worship them and statues designed in their likeness to stand at the entryway of marketplaces and public buildings where everyone could leave a sacrifice or libation of some kind. To be the son of a god was indeed to be a god oneself. The mystery of the Trinity was deeply hidden in the Hebrew scriptures, and it took several church councils over a number of centuries to come to some sort of understanding of how the Godhead might be grasped. It is not something we as three-dimensional creatures can fully comprehend. We try our best to hold the perspective of God and human together, but with open hands. The Son of God is said to be one person of the Godhead, the Trinity. As God, Jesus is eternal. Jesus always existed. Jesus has the true divine nature. Before there was anything, Jesus was with God, a distinct person in the Godhead, and he was also God. That is what the first few verses of John's Gospel was seeking to convey. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, the visible aspect of God. But Jesus is not just an image or a reflection of God. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the absolutely authentic representation of God's being. Paul explained that all of God's fullness, the totality of God's powers and attributes, rests in Jesus. God upholds the universe by the word of God's power, Jesus. Jesus actively holds all things together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The Father and the Son are equal in being, yet in the plan of redemption the Son subordinated himself to the Father, a willing subordination that in no way implies inferiority. At a specific moment in earth's history, the Son of God took a human form, becoming the man we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said in this gospel that he, as God, entered from eternity into the world, not to judge it, but to save it. Jesus has a true human nature that is perfectly united with his divine nature. Jesus was completely human, except he was without imperfection in his inner being. As a human, Jesus humbled himself by becoming perfectly obedient. We might say, so attuned to God as to be one with God's will and God's intention, to God, even to the point of death on the cross for the sake of our salvation. Jesus' death and resurrection have changed everything. The work of redemption is complete. After Jesus' humility and obedience, God has exalted him, giving him authority over every authority. Jesus now remains the unique God-man forever, fully God and fully human. John, along with the teaching of the apostles, shows Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Today, many think that Son of God and Messiah still do not mean God, the God of the universe, the real God. But there was no confusion during Jesus' ministry about who he claimed to be. The scribes understood that Jesus was claiming the same essence as God. In fact, the Pharisees told Jesus, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. 
because you, being a man, make yourself God. So we have to come to a conclusion, yes or no. Is this true or not true? Taken as a whole, it was the intention of John's gospel that readers and hearers make some conclusions based upon these witnesses' testimony. Affirm yes or no, with no gray in between. Some form of the word for believe is found 98 times in this gospel. John wrote about the great themes of life, and the word for life occurs in at least 42 verses, contrasted to death, which is only mentioned nine verses. John talked about Jesus as light, which appears in 16 verses, and he contrasted it to darkness. John talked about love in 21 verses, and he referred to the hate that was leveled against Jesus. And here are the themes that we find in John. Life versus death. Light versus darkness. Love versus hate. Belief versus unbelief. Faith versus falling away. These are binary themes. There is no in-between. It's yes or no, either or. And there seem to be four main sections to John's gospel. In chapters 1 through 4, John recorded the first stages of belief and unbelief. In his prologue, John described the two kinds of response to Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Against irrefutable proof, the majority was going to reject Jesus. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There was a minority who would believe and receive Jesus. In chapters 2-3, to three, John showed what he meant. In the heart of Judaism, Jesus was met with skepticism. Jesus began his public ministry by clearing the temple, calling it his father's house. The scribes and teachers of the law legitimately wanted to know by what authority Jesus thought he could come in and take over the business of the temple, which was, properly, by Moses' law, in the hands of the tribe of Levi and the priests. More importantly, by what authority did Jesus claim God as his father? Afterwards, Nicodemus, a member of the ruling council of Israel, was shocked to find out from Jesus that Nicodemus was actually not okay with God, that following the law was not enough. But right after that, in chapter 4, a Samaritan woman with a painful past put her faith in Jesus and brought her entire town out to meet Jesus. Then in chapters 5-6, through six, there is a further polarization of belief and unbelief to the point of intense hatred of and active opposition to Jesus as he turned the established religious world upside down. In his first real confrontation with the Jewish leaders, the first time they were preparing to stone him, Jesus claimed equality with God as life-giver. Since they asked Jesus by what authority, Jesus presented his own evidence, beginning with John the Baptist, last of the Hebrew Testament prophets. Then Jesus pointed to his own works, to the testimony of God the Father, and to the scriptures. Finally, Jesus told them that even Moses, whose law they were certain they obeyed, stood as their accuser for not believing in Jesus. Many people rejected Jesus because he refused to be their earthly king and kept talking about spiritual things. In fact, by the end of chapter 6, as Jesus leaned into the teaching of eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus' followers were brought to a crisis of belief, and many of them decided Jesus was just too hard to follow. They didn't like where he was going with his teaching. But Peter spoke for the twelve disciples when he said, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Just as others were leaving, the disciples now drew in closer to Jesus. And then in chapters 7-11, through 11, there was a crystallization of belief and unbelief. 
So by chapter 7, the escalation of conflict between Jesus and the Judean religious leaders broke out in an attempted arrest of Jesus while he was teaching in the temple precinct. In chapter 8, Jesus publicly indicated his deity. In chapter 9, Jesus' healing of a blind man is considered a fulcrum, both in Mark's and in John's gospel, a turning point where the religious leader's spiritual darkness and Jesus' light create a spiritual divide among the people. Then in chapter 10, religious authorities tried to stone Jesus, but many others believed. And then in chapters 11 and 12, there's a change in strategy. The religious leaders now begin to carefully devise Jesus' destruction. So by the middle of chapter 12, Jesus withdrew publicly and began to teach only his disciples and closest followers. Finally, in chapters 13 through 20, there's a centering of belief among Jesus' disciples and close followers and the hardening of unbelief among all the rest. Tension built as Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, prayed with them, and then was arrested, tried, flogged, and sent outside Jerusalem with his cross. The climax came in chapter 19 of belief in those at the foot of the cross and unbelief in the nails being hammered through Jesus' feet and hands. The resurrection in chapter 20 is what continues to confirm eternal life in those who believe and confirms the condemnation of God's wrath over unbelief. John's gospel quoted Jesus as saying those who did not believe in him would die in their sins and warned those who rejected Jesus would have to face the Father in judgment. Just as there is life in Christ, so there is judgment without Jesus. Knowing the truth about Jesus requires a response. John's epilogue in chapter 21 gathers the disciples back together as Jesus would begin his final time of teaching and commissioning. From the evidence John put forward, he was confident any jury would reach a verdict of belief and faith in Messiah, the Son of God, the one called Jesus. Let's pray. O Lord, as we study this remarkable testament, please help us also to weigh the evidence with wisdom. Strengthen our faith and trust in that you are three in one, God the Father and God the Son, Messiah and God the Spirit, and that you are the one to shepherd us through the trials of life. We pray this in the power of your name, O Lord Jesus Christ, and to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.